Coming up in this episode, a possible return to torturing terrorists. We are entering in this issue of interrogation techniques a minefield, and it's not clear to me that the president understands how three-dimensional this is. Philip Mudd, former CIA counterterrorism official and current counterterrorism expert. This is not simply a choice of whether the president of the United States tells the CIA to do something. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by TrueCar. There's something about TrueCar a lot of people don't know. Using TrueCar can also help you buy a used car. In fact, there are more than 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from TrueCar certified dealers nationwide. Whether you're looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing that empowers, discounts off the list price for used cars, and a better buying experience through the TrueCar certified dealer network. You can see what other people paid for the car you want, so you can know what a fair price is and feel confident. TrueCar has competitive pricing offered to you only by TrueCar certified dealers for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership. TrueCar shows customers all of their available incentives before they arrive. More than 3 million cars have been sold to TrueCar users by the TrueCar certified dealer network, and there are more than 13,000 True Car Certified Dealers Nationwide. So when you're ready to buy, new or used, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, interrogating terrorist, enhanced interrogation to be specific. And on this program, we find out what it is and why it would be a problem if the U.S. went back to it. So what exactly is enhanced interrogation? It's a euphemism for the now banned U.S. government's program of systematic torture of detainees by the CIA, DIA, and various components of the U.S. Armed Forces at black sites or secret prisons around the world. Methods include beating, binding, stress points, hooding, deafening noise, sleep deprivation, withholding of food, medical care, and of course, the infamous technique of waterboarding. On the floor of the Senate, December 9, 2014, California Senator Dianne Feinstein described it in graphic detail. Beginning with the first detainee, Abu Zubaydah, and continuing with numerous others, the CIA applied its so-called enhanced interrogation techniques in combination and in near-stop fashion for days and even weeks at a time on one detainee. In contrast to CIA representations, detainees were subjected to the most aggressive techniques immediately, stripped naked, diapered, physically struck, and put in various painful stress positions for long periods of time. 
They were deprived of sleep for days. In one case, up to 180 hours. That's seven and a half days over a week with no sleep. Usually standing or in stress positions. At times with their hands tied together over their heads, chained to the ceiling. In the cobalt facility, I previously mentioned, interrogators and guards used what they called rough takedowns, in which a detainee was grabbed from his cell, clothes cut off, hooded, and dragged up and down a dirt hallway while being slapped and punched. The CIA led several detainees to believe they would never be allowed to leave CIA custody alive, suggesting to Abu Zubaydah that he would only leave in a coffin-shaped box. That's a CIA cable from August 12, 2002. As I mentioned, the practice is now banned in the United States. Illegal. But President Donald Trump recently talked about reviving the practice. One of the people who was at the CIA during the time the practice was in use was Philip Mudd, a CIA executive who later went on to the FBI. He told us it's not a good idea to go back to that. We are entering in this issue of interrogation techniques a minefield, and it's not clear to me that the president understands how three-dimensional this is. This is not simply a choice of whether the president of the United States tells the CIA to do something. It is a choice that would involve the Department of Justice. Would they determine, after the Obama Department of Justice denied it, would they determine that those steps are legal? Second, what would the Congress say? Democrats in the Congress years ago issued a report that excoriated the CIA for engaging in these. And third, would the CIA actually do it? I have mixed feelings among my friends and former colleagues about whether they would execute such an order because we did this 15 years ago and many members of Congress not only objected, but also uh, pressed for legal prosecution of some of my colleagues. So I think this is not just about what President Trump wants to do. This is about what the law is what the Congress wants, and whether the CIA would actually execute a decision to proceed with interrogation techniques. My guess would be it's not going to happen. One of the things, though, looking sort of at the other side of the coin on that, the tactics that terrorists are using and some of the technology that's available to them has made them a much more lethal enemy. Um, Do you not believe that that tactic might be even reconsidered Um, based on what it is that terrorists are willing to do. I mean, we have four- and five-year-olds that are shooting and killing people overseas. Also, you have uh, almost instantaneous calls to drive trucks, big trucks, through Christmas markets that some people are taking the terrorists up on. Um, So do you, you believe that changing tactics or at least considering something like that is still out of the realm of possibility or question? I believe the White House and others will consider more aggressive tactics. My simple question would be why. I would not concur with them. Not because I think what we did 15 years ago was wrong. I do not believe that. My simple question would be, what do you see in this adversary? As this adversary loses ground, they lose leadership, they lose recruits from Europe and the United States. They've lost access to oil money in places like Iraq. As they lose ground, despite the fact that we've seen occasional attacks or, uh, by ISIS or ISIS-inspired in- individuals in Europe and the United States, as they lose, lose ground, why would we make a U-turn on the issue of aggressive interrogations? I don't frankly see the need for it. That's aside from the question of whether it's legal and, and whether it conforms with American values. Explain to me why you think this was necessary. Fifteen years ago, 
We were on the back foot. We didn't own their leadership. We didn't understand their hierarchy. We didn't understand their access to WMD. And we did not think we had the time to fill in those boxes without the techniques we use. So the world has changed. And I don't know why we wouldn't accept that we're under less threat than we were 15 years ago. Okay, let's talk about that threat. How do you assess the threat from terror groups like ISIS, like uh, Al-Qaeda, like any of the terror groups out there that the U.S. has been faced uh, with for the last 15 years or so? Let me give you a couple dimensions to get out of the emotional assessment of threat, the fact that people are worried about ISIS, and get into a more analytic discussion. One, in the core areas where these people have operated, places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, how do you understand the threat there? They own less geography, fewer recruits, less money. Their ideology has lost ground over the past 15 years. I think at the core area, in the spaces that I mentioned, they've lost ground. Second, are you agile enough to move to the new areas, places like Libya, where they may gain ground? In the past couple of years, maybe northern Nigeria, Sinai Desert. And finally, as you destroy this organization at its core, how do you deal with homegrowns who aren't directly connected with these groups? the ripple effect, if you will, of ISIS in places like Orlando or San Bernardino. I think we're winning against the core organizations. Those organizations have a ripple effect because they have access to recruits via social media, via YouTube. We'll deal with that ripple effect for years. But I do not think an occasional attack in America or Western Europe is an indicator that ISIS is on a roll. It is not. And speaking of that social media component um, and the elements that they've employed involving the Internet, uh, a number of sources that I've spoken to have suggested that that organization may be interested in gravitating from a physical uh, caliphate, uh, wanting to establish a physical caliphate to a virtual caliphate and using social media, tweeting instructions uh, and uh, engaging in social media platforms such as Twitter. I understand you've been doing some instruction on how to engage that way. So I wonder if you would uh, sort of give us an idea of how you would deal with a, tw a tweet or something that came across from a known uh, ISIS terror operative to someone in terms of reporting it to the police. If you were a policeman, how would you handle it? We've got a couple of basic questions here. First, you can tweet anything you want. This is a free country. The area that I focus on is whether someone who is in the midst of tweeting or engaging with ISIS is also indicating that they will join or support a terrorist organization or that they will commit an act of violence. If you want to put an ISIS flag on your account, that's allowed for by U.S. law. If you want to talk about an act of violence, that is not. Once we determine that someone has gone down the path of violence or supporting a terror organization, there's one basic question. Forget about who that individual is. Do we understand whether that individual represents a broader network that is a threat? In other words, are they sitting in a basement with four friends who are conspiring to build explosive devices? Are they sitting in a basement with four friends who are trying to get through Europe and Turkey to Syria to fight with ISIS? So we have to look first at how we distinguish between free speech and violence or support for a terror organization, and second, to how we map out social media activities of individuals once they decide to go down a path of violence. I, and, and that's the kind of thing I teach. So, okay, what do you tell, say, the folks in a room uh, that may be law enforcement officers that get the affirmative of those threats that you have just outlined? They've crossed the boundary uh, from free speech to the threat. What, what steps are next for them? 
be careful about distinguishing between taking down an individual who has who is potentially going to commit an act of violence and ensuring that before we take them down, we understand the extent of their network. That is, every network has a potential for people providing money, people providing plane tickets, people who are providing visas or passports, people who are providing ideological inspiration, people at the periphery of the of the plot who have pushed the group towards conducting an act of violence. What I say to the groups that I teach is we are not here simply to prosecute an individual who is violating federal law. We are here to map out a network of activity that includes money, travel, radicalization. And once we understand that network, we take the entire thing down. The kind of thing that was done with the five families in organized crime here in New York City, it wasn't just taking out numbers runners. It was taking out the leaders of the five families so that those networks could never resuscitate themselves. One of the things, Philip, that's taken place against the backdrop of a more aggressive terror activity and clearly the kind of teaching that you are doing uh, with law enforcement and other uh, analytical uh, elements within the U.S. that's fighting against that aggressive terror activity is these organizations, ISIS in particular, has gone after this generational quest. Um, if we end up getting taken down, we want our organization to survive sort of thinking. Um, one colonel from the U.S. military told me that they have seen a full-page ad taken out in one of ISIL's most, ISIS's most recent magazines aimed at an app directed at essentially children. Uh, and to try to in, 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 in encourage them to uh, join them in their way of thinking. How do you combat that from a, from a counterterrorism perspective? Well, there's a defensive piece that's new. That is, the U.S. government doesn't own the Internet. People on the West Coast do. And so U.S. engagement, not to direct what West Coast firms do, firms that are involved in the Internet, social media firms, for example, but to partner with them and even to support them to say, we want to take these people off the Internet. We don't want to allow them to tweet. How do we support U.S. companies instead of trying to intimidate them via the Congress? How do we support them in their efforts? And they're very active. I talked and they're very active to take these people off the Internet. But let's keep our eye on the ball. That is to stop this problem. You've got some old school issues. One, you have to eliminate their leadership, the leadership of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, etc. And two, you have to eliminate their safe haven, their ability to plan attacks and their ability to disseminate ideology. So those old issues of eliminating safe haven and leadership are important, even while you work with this new problem of supporting West Coast social media firms to keep this stuff off the Internet. So looking at where we are and all of the uh, great solutions that you've laid out in terms of how to deal with various aspects of, of terrorism. Intelligence is a key thing here, obviously. You know that. Um, that is perhaps the most important thing. How does the U.S. intelligence community have to evolve to stay ahead of this threat? I think that one of the ways you have to evolve is understanding that a lot of threat is not physical. It is virtual. Recruiting the kinds of people who understand not only how the Internet works, but how we can follow people across the internet once they decide that an act of violence is appropriate. I need 26 year olds who have IT degrees. That is not the people that I was recruited with. The second is to maintain engagements with countries around the world, not to become isolated, but to maintain engagements. So those countries that have their own problems in Africa, in North Africa, in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, still keep, feel comfortable approaching us to say, we need your help 
to chase a highly sophisticated target. Please support us with intelligence, with training, with equipment, and occasionally with military force. So working at home to chase a new threat that is really disseminating propaganda on the internet and is not doing it in terms of physical face-to-face meetings and staying in touch with global partners who will keep this fight going for us as long as we don't step away from them. Well, I've already taken up a lot of your time today, but I have one more area that I'd like to delve into, but not for very long, and that is the Russia situation. The U.S. and Russia are are at a really interesting point in in our histories. Uh, Based on what you know about the Russian activity, active measures, etc., um, the information warfare campaign that they've been engaged in for quite some time. Assess, assess for us what you think Russia's up to and what their objective might be. Their objective is pretty straightforward, and that is Russia, after the fall of the Soviet Union, fell in the eyes of Vladimir Putin into disarray. How does he restore not the Soviet Union, but the Russian Empire? And how does he restore it in the face of an America from his perspective that's in his backyard? We always look at the world from America's perspective. A man we view as a dictator has moved into places like Crimea. He looks at it from a perspective of saying, NATO expansion means that America is coming after me. They're encircling me, so I I don't agree with what he's done, but I certainly understand his perspective. One more thing, JJ, and that is, I think we are too fast in partisan America to divide this into between people who say Vladimir Putin can't be trusted, and people who say we have got to figure out a path forward with Vladimir Putin. The road is somewhere in between. On Syria, we need to talk to the Russians. On hacking of of an American election, we need to be suspicious of Russian intentions. We can talk to them and be suspicious of them at the same time, but it's difficult to do when Washington is divided between people who see the world as black and people who see it as white. In the case of Russia, we got to work with them, but we got to be suspicious of them at the same time. There's a middle road. Do you have an idea on how might be best to sew up this divide in, in the U.S. about how to approach this? One question I would have for, for people who would say we should not work with the Russians because of what they did to our election is quite straightforward. Something like 400,000 people plus have died in the Syrian civil war. We support, the U.S. government does, an opposition in Syria that has no hope of success. You have two options. Continue to support an opposition that will fail or try to determine how to work with the one key player there, that is the Russians, who can maybe bring an ugly end to a civil war. My answer to the people who don't want to work with the Russians is, give me a better way out and please don't tell me that that way out in that one area, Syria, includes the continuation of a civil war. That is not a right solution. In other words, get over ourselves and look at the bigger picture. Move on. Okay. Philip Mudd, thank you so much for all of your perspective on all of these areas. I do appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up in our next episode. Why is it so hard for the U.S. to get counterterrorism messaging right? Well, I certainly think that we have not found a very good way of countering their narrative. We have talked for years about developing some sort of counter-narrative, which in itself says that we are having to counter what they say and that they are taking the lead in this ideological battle. Dr. Martha Crenshaw from Stanford University has co-written a new book called Countering Terrorism. Coming up on our next episode, I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.
The Forbes interview from Podcast One just launched with the king of podcasting, Adam Carolla. On February 1st, we're dropping a new show. It's called Forbes Under 30, where we talk to young entrepreneurs, hosted by me, Steve Goldblum. It's interesting because when you're a creator, that never leaves you. You always have this urge to want to create. Like, it's just who you are. You like you like to grow from Wreck-It Ralph. She knew she was a driver the whole time. That's Martellus Bennett, one of our first guests. Who knew this NFL star was also an artist? He's that and much more. Subscribe to Under 30 on iTunes now. And be sure to give us a rating and a review.